I have to take him back inside myself. I can't survive without him. I don't want to take him back. He's like an animal, a thoughtless, brutal animal. Yet it's me. Me. Ladies and gentlemen, it is time for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm your host, Scott Mance. And I'm Steve Morris. And on this episode of Enterprise Incidents, we are going to do a deep dive into an absolute classic episode. An episode I couldn't wait for us to get to it. And we really didn't have to wait long because on Enterprise Incidents, we are going in production order of every single episode of the original Star Trek. Not air date order, but the actual production order so we can really get into the evolution of the show. And especially in the early episodes, see how when they did things first, how that affected the rest of the series. So the enemy within, I have always, always loved this episode. It has always been in my top 10 of the greatest Star Trek episodes of all time. And so far in the episodes we've done for Enterprise Incidents, this was the one I was the most excited to do so far. You know, it's the night is young, Steve. (laughs) So we got a long way to go, but this is one I was definitely excited about. Like what what were your early thoughts about The Enemy Within? It's so funny because I've always loved it too, but I don't think I put it as high. I love where no man has gone before and Corbinite maneuver. And so I, I don't think I put this quite as high. And now, and, and yet I always loved it. And it always made me think like I have thought about, and we'll get into kind of what that is, but I have thought about the ideas of this episode for my whole life. It's like a cornerstone of how I think and watching it this time. I'm just going to a spoiler alert. It genuinely moved me watching mm-hmm. it this time. And maybe because I'm a different place in my life and maybe because I watched Shatner's performance in a different way, mm-hmm. but his vulnerability and the, it, it moved me this episode. I have to say that, that you know, we've talked in the past episodes and I've said on numerous occasions how the reason I became a Star Trek fan was because of Captain Kirk, because of William Shatner's performance as Captain Kirk. And Shatner's performance in this episode in particular is an absolute tour de force. I think he is brilliant in both capacities as, as both Kirks. And what I always loved about it was, I, you know, I always, I always knew that it was one of the earlier episodes. So I always appreciated how much this episode in particular established the dynamic between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, how yes. how there's this tug of war going on between Spock and McCoy, and Kirk is the rope. And this episode is a great, great example of that. And the fact that it was written by one of the greatest science fiction authors of all time, Richard Matheson, who, of course, wrote the book, I Am Legend, which has been turned into a movie mm. with different names. Of, of course, you know, the Omega Man is is that, and then the Will Smith movie, I Am Legend. He also, of course, direct, uh, wrote two uh, seminal episodes of The Twilight Zone, Nick of Time from the second season and Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. Wait, you wrote both season. the Shatner ones? He wrote both of the Twilight Zone episodes that Shatner was in. So Steve... Of course, when Richard Matheson came to Star Trek to write The Enemy Within, 
he wrote it for Shatner because he thought Shatner did a great job in both of those episodes. Now, the writer, the credited writer, I should say, is Matheson, although towards the end, he was heavily rewritten by Gene Roddenberry, and we'll get into all that. The episode was directed by Leo Penn. The last name is Penn. So who do you think Leo Penn was the father of? Well, he's the father. This is Arthur's Penn, Arthur Penn's father? No, this is Sean Penn. Oh, yeah, the late Chris Penn, his father, yeah, their father. So Leo Penn. I had no idea. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. How about that? Yes, Leo Penn directed The Enemy Within. It was the only episode that Leo Penn directed. The score was composed. Okay, this is actually pretty cool. Saul Kaplan composed the complete original score for The Enemy Within. It's about 23 minutes of music recorded specifically for this episode. And of course, you know that they reused music cues from this episode for the rest of the series. But Saul Kaplan uh, composed this episode. And can you guess the other episode that he did? Okay. Because of the way you're asking that question, I do have, I have, I've never heard this. I have no idea, but the guess that I have is a mock. Okay. Close. You were, Steve, that is a great guess because it is, for the second season. Theme, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. It is it is a great pick um because it's such a uh, such a great theme but the second season episode and it is one of the greatest episodes of all time Saul Kaplan the second Star Trek score he composed was The Doomsday Machine. Oh, of course. That, so, that's got great great music. Absolutely yeah. it does. So Saul Kaplan recorded that uh, score on September 14th, 1966. The episode was filmed between June 14th and June 22nd, 1966. It uh, took six and three quarter days to film. This episode aired on October 6th, 1966. It was the fifth episode to air. And the cost for this episode was $193,000. Six hundred and forty-six dollars, which is about one hundred and forty-six dollars above the per episode budget of one hundred ninety-three thousand five hundred dollars. So Leo Penn, although the, he went a little over schedule, he brought the episode in practically right on cue and right on budget. Listen, if you're one hundred and forty-six bucks over, you made it. You <laughs> <Yeah>. did good, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, but uh, Saul Kaplan, you know, he, he just for for Star Trek to get a composer like him. Saul Kaplan uh, did the music scores for Rawhide from nineteen fifty one. The nineteen 1950- wait, did he write? Did he write the Rawhide theme? Well, I- he he did the music for the nineteen fifty one movie. Oh, and, okay. And then uh, the 1953 version of Titanic, not the James Cameron version. Right. Uh, also, The Spy Who Came In from the Cold and Winchester 73 starring James Stewart, which is a great movie. Yeah. Now, when we get into this episode, when we really get into the – do our deep dive into this amazing episode, we're going to see, Steve, that this episode was responsible for a lot of firsts. In Star Trek, and also a couple of goofs, a couple of continuity goofs. We'll get into all that. But getting back to over the years, when I first discovered this episode, 
as a kid in the 70s and in the days before VCRs, this was one of the first episodes that I recorded on a tape recorder because the practically, I would say 95% of the episode takes place aboard the Enterprise. And because of that, much of it does feel like a stage play. It feels like a radio play. Yeah. So it lends itself perfectly to an audio episode. And it was uh, one of the first episodes that I've really started to memorize the dialogue. But the first story outline that Richard Matheson wrote was dated April 4th, 1966. So John D.F. Black, who was one of the producers of the show in the first half of the first season, did a script polish that was dated June 6th. And then the final draft version of the screenplay that was rewritten by Roddenberry was dated June 8th. And then they went into production on uh, the episode on June 14th. But, you know, Richard Matheson is just such a revered author. And, uh, you know, he was not thrilled about being rewritten by Roddenberry. But, you know, to Roddenberry's credit, uh, as we get into it, we'll see that Roddenberry had some really, really great ideas that made the episode even better. So you got, you got to go with that. And it was Roddenberry's show. It was early in the season, in the first season. And it's almost like because Star Trek was so unprecedented, because nothing like it had ever been done before, you know, when they were sending out scripts to other writers to get done, you know, nobody knew what it was. The only person who had Star Trek's voice in his head was Roddenberry. So if somebody who's a great writer turns in a screenplay and, and he just goes, no, 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 no. That's, that's not what Kirk would say. That's not what he would do. That's not what Spock would do. You know, he just goes, I'll, I'll just fix it, you know, but then the writers would get upset when he did that. So I, having been a writer briefly on some animation shows and having the head writer, I said, I could do a rewrite. And they're like, no, 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 I'll just fix it. And then they yeah. fix my script. It's not fun. Nobody wants their script fixed. My feeling about it is it's sort of, I don't know. It's sort of the proof is in the pudding, I guess, is that when I hear about Roddenberry rewriting other people's stuff and it ends up with an episode like The Enemy Within, I am all for it. Yeah. And if we were ever to talk about Next Generation, there are a lot of times where I hear the Roddenberry rewrite stories and it's just, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <know>? yeah. <laughs> um, but that's not certainly not the case here. The other thing I, I just want to say is for me, the definition of science fiction is that it's fiction that uses science to explore the human condition and human ideas in ways that we couldn't without science fiction, that we can't do this in the real world. And this even it's not that there weren't ideas in the cage. It's not that there weren't ideas in Corbamite or where no man has gone before. There's not a whole lot in Mud's Women. But this <laughs> is the first episode where there is a lot to chew on. I mean, there's, and what I'll say just from the beginning is that I've been thinking about this episode both in terms of the context of 1966, but also just spoiler alert. I've been fascinated by the human brain and how it works for a long time. And there's so much stuff in here that is surprisingly on point and prescient about what we've learned in the last 55 years since this episode about the brain and how it works. And so we'll talk about some of that as we go along. 
it's it's really it's really something that this episode uh, originally conceived. Uh, Matheson wanted to do Star Trek's version of the Robert Louis Stevenson story, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, and yet here I've seen this episode now. I, I mean, not even exaggerating, Steve, more than two hundred times. But when I sat down yesterday to rewatch it and to take notes while I was rewatching it. It's it's something to be said, and, and this definitely happened when I started reviewing movies, is that movies that I'd seen a million times, I saw them differently because I was looking at them with right. a different eye. And I looked, I watched The Enemy Within with such different eyes. And, 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 and also from a critical standpoint, I was just completely floored by how this episode holds up. Also, by something that happens in this episode – that is extremely provocative and controversial, even by today's standards, let alone 1966. So yeah. we'll get into all that. But before we do, so when this episode aired on October 6, 1966, that was the day that California became the first state to ban lysergic acid diethylamide, otherwise really? known as LSD. Wow. <laughs> So being a native Californian, growing up in the Bay Area, being a Berkeley fan, my parents went to Berkeley, I went to Berkeley, this is a a seminal moment in the history of my state, (laughs) and in particular that community in the mid to late 60s. Yeah, much to the chagrin of the Grateful Dead. Uh, And then the very next day, on October 7th, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena announced that NASA was considering JPL's idea of the Grand Tour. Now, for those of you who don't know what the Grand Tour is, and I'm, this this goes back to Star Trek in some ways, remember Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. So the whole idea was that the planets in our solar system, at least a few of them, were going to align in such a way that one deep space probe could be sent to Jupiter then have it slingshot around Jupiter, go to Saturn, then move on to the other planets. So this was the day, October 7th, where JPL announced that NASA was considering their bold plan to do the Grand Tour. And years later, from 1977 when it launched to uh, 1989 when it, it, it got past uh, Neptune, it was, a, it was one of the biggest successes in the history of NASA and well, it's space exploration. Well, and obviously, you know, that's when they decided to send V'ger out, who later came back <laughs> yeah. to try to destroy the Earth, looking for its creator. Now, I often wonder, like, why, when they did Star Trek, the motion picture, why did they make it Voyager 6? I mean, they could have just made it, like, Voyager 1 or Voyager 2, and it would have made it so much more, uh, like, relevant. <laughs> but it's okay. You know, why nitpick something like that? So, Scott, shall we get into The Enemy Within? Let's get into the enemy within and i'm very 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 excited to do a deep dive into this classic absolute classic episode with you steve morris so it starts off in a very innocuous innocuous way we're down on a planet we're doing some scientific stuff we hear the temperature's going to go down super super cold at night but fortunately we're not going to we're not going to be there then a dude kind of falls and gets himself scraped up he's got some yellow stuff on him and he's got a you know they say beam up to the bridge beams up to the bridge something weird happens with the transporter 
Scotty, oh, we got to decontaminate it. And maybe that was a burnout. Probably no big deal, Scott. I think I don't think anything bad is possibly going to happen. But just too um, late, something bad does happen <laughs> because this is a teaser and something bad always happens in the teaser. Well, that's what's, what it's it's so funny in the ways that storytelling works is that when you see the dude with the yellow thing and you see their problem with the transporter and Scotty says, oh, this is magnetic or something. We know what we're watching. We know something's going to go wrong. Kirk says he's ready to beam up. They kind of check the transporter. That's okay. Everything's going to be fine. He he beams up. And this is just a thought that occurred to me at this moment. As I think about the level of perfection you actually would have to have to have this thing called a transporter work. Like you think of how much technicians come to review an airplane before it takes off every single time. Well, this is like 10 billion times more complicated. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. All right, Captain. Locked on to you. So when Scotty's trying to beam Kirk aboard, it's taken him a while to materialize. Like he doesn't just materialize and that's it. Everything is fine. He has to like sort of boost the transporter and then, and then Kirk finally comes in. And the, the, the amazing thing in is about the transporter. This was a plot point that was developed to save the series the expense of having the Enterprise land on a planet every week. And here this device wound up being so, so brilliant, such an amazing concept, something that is still being developed in science today. They're still working on it. And it also became something that is really synonymous with Star Trek, Be Me Up, Scotty. And even though that line was never actually said, and it also created so many great moments of dramatic tension throughout all of the shows, let alone just the original series. And this episode was the first one where they used the transporter, you know, this, this, this device that makes it very convenient to get from the enterprise to the planet or from the enterprise to another, another ship, um, or even a, in the third season from the enterprise to the Enterprise in Day of the Dove. Um, But in this episode, we have the transporter mechanism fail. Something's a little bit wrong because when Kirk arrives on the pad, he's a little dizzy. He stumbles. He tries to walk out through a wall. Can't get through there. So Scotty offers to take him to his quarters. And Kirk says, don't leave the transporter room unattended to. Great line. Great line. That's a... It's a perfect uh-oh line. Well, and then Sky says, that's okay. We'll be right back. Now, this is one of the many shots of this episode that I thought Leo Penn did an amazing job. So, Kirk, or I should say, all right, just, just here we are, Steve. We're in the teaser of this episode. Because from this point forward, we're going to have two Kirks to talk about. So, before we go any further, how should we identify the two Kirks? Should we do well, the good Kirk and the evil Kirk? I, I'll tell you, in my notes, I wrote good Kirk, bad Kirk, but I could do good Kirk, evil Kirk. Okay, well, I think what we should do is good Kirk, dark Kirk, because mm. think about it. When you think of the ultimate theme of this episode, that we need the dark side in order to survive and in order to make bold decisions and in order to have courage. 
I don't think evil is the right word. I don't even think that bad is the right word. I think dark is the right word. I like it. So like you've it. got the good Kirk and you've got the dark Kirk because it's his darker side. What I think is so good about that and what I think is so good about the episode, as you said, the transporter was just invented to save money. That's the only reason we did it because we didn't want to go down on the planet. And yet this technology allows you to explore parts of the human condition about consciousness and what is it that makes us us because we've introduced this is classic science fiction. We take a piece of technology, we use it to explore a complicated idea. And and the next moment after don't leave the transporter room unattended, transporter comes up on its own. But but see, this is the shot that Leo Penn did. So Scotty and, and the good Kirk walk through the, the walk through the door, the door closes. And as soon, as soon as the door closes and makes that swooshing sound effect, you hear the transporter ding and the camera does that quick pan back to the platform and then you start to see someone else is beaming aboard with their back to the camera and this is a shot that i've heard william shatner say he always loved being able to do shots like this where it starts on his back and he swings around and in this episode when the dark kirk swings around that camera angle, the lighting, the position of the camera right under Shatner's face, he's being lit from underneath. And he's like sort of sniffing like a, a rabid dog. And then as Saul Kappen's music score swells into that last moment, Shatner looks right into the camera. It is so well done. What's so interesting about it is that, you know, we, I had comments about not necessarily all positive comments about the camera work in Mud's Women. <laughs> and this episode also has extreme camera work. Like that shot you're describing, it's a push in, the pan. You know, there's a thing you talk about in directing, which is an unmotivated versus a motivated co- camera move. So a motivated camera move is if I'm walking left to right and the camera moves with me left to right. My, my walking motivates the camera move. Or even if I suddenly turn to the right and the camera whips off me and looks at the thing I'm looking at, my move motivated the camera move. If a camera just moves on its own, that's unmotivated. It makes you much more aware of the filmmaking. This episode is so theatrical in the way it does things. Like suddenly we're lighting Kirk from beneath. We're in this extreme close-up with cameras flying in on in low angles And of course, the music stings going along with it. And Shatner's performance is like, oh, Star Trek is saying this isn't realism that they did in this episode. There's a lot of things that are really, really theatrical. None of the other Star Trek shows after the original series had the teaser, the whole concept of the teaser down. The the teasers for the original series were so great and they were so perfect. They would pack so much into those first three or four minutes to set the stage for the rest of the episode. I can't tell you how many times, and I'm not, I'm not dissing the next generation at all, but you know, the teasers in that, in that, in that series were like kind of boring. <laughs> Nothing really happens in those teasers, but in the original series, a There's lot some good happened. Ones. There's some good yeah. ones, but There's some good the ones. ratio, the ratio of good teasers in the original series towers over the ratio of good uh, teasers in every other Star Trek series that followed. So we go to titles, we come back from our titles, 
and our commercial. And we hear something which I think kind of violates Star Trek rules, which is we have the captain's log, but the captain's log is in the past tense. Mm -hmm. He says, Unknown to any of us during this time, a duplicate of me, some strange alter ego, had been created by the transporter malfunction. Now, in general, captain's logs are present tense. We are doing this. This is a captain's log from the future. And what I'll say is, I think this is totally unnecessary. I think the reason it was written is they went, are people really going to get that that's a duplicate? And they were nervous about it. And so they put this in to make sure to explain it. Uh, I, I, um, think, I think that's a good way to look at it. I never thought about it that way. I always looked at it as, well, it was still very, very, very early in the mm -hmm. in the production of the show. And they, you know, they didn't quite know, like, okay, we're no we're, we're doing Captain's Log. I mean, we've been doing that since where no man has gone before. But like what what purpose does the captain's log serve? Is the captain's log just as a as a way to uh, give some exposition to the audience? Or is the captain's log like a true captain's log? And I think for the, I, I always looked at this episode's captain's log for this particular act, act one, as sort of like, we're just letting you know what's happening here. It's exposition. Um, yeah. But when Kirk beams aboard the Enterprise, the, the dark Kirk, he's missing something. He's missing the insignia, the command insignia on his shirt. And he didn't have it on the planet's surface either in the teaser. Yet, uh, in, in just a bit, we're going to see the good Kirk has his insignia on. So everyone picks up on this. Like, like where was Kirk's insignia? Why didn't he have it when he was on the planet and when he beamed aboard the Enterprise? Well, the the truth of the story is that the velour shirts that they wore were, had to be washed every single day. So they had to take the insignias off. So they just forgot to put it back on, which is, which is crazy. Like, you know, if I'm Captain Kirk, if I'm William Shatner, I'm playing Captain Kirk, I'd be like, Hey, where's my insignia? You know? Um, the other thing is, is maybe after Kirk beamed aboard the enterprise, he went somewhere and he put his insignia back on his shirt. I don't know, but it's a, it's a common, it's, it's often pointed out as a goof and we have to point it out too. So there it is. Anyone who's been on a movie set, it's so hard. You think you think it'd be easy, but it's that's why you have a script supervisor and their job. They have many jobs. They have a, a very difficult job, but one of them is just to watch for stuff like that, and because it's it gets real hard to keep track of on these long days. Um, we got to just point out Shatner's performance in these two roles is really great. And yes, is it? Are we right at the edge of over the topness sometimes? With Dark Kirk, sure, but it's it, it is so obvious every time you see these characters who you're looking at. Absolutely, absolutely agree. And even though they went they went the extra mile to on one hand they would have the good Kirk wearing the for the first time the green wraparound shirt, which looked different in the second season, but but they gave him a different shirt to wear so that the audience could easily tell the difference between the good Kirk and the Dark Kirk. They gave the Dark Kirk. Two two qualities to separate him. One was obviously in a, in, a, in a little bit we're going to see that he gets scratches on his face and he has the scars from them. But the other was that in order to accentuate the steely glare and the menacing presence of the dark Kirk, Shatner wore dark eyeliner to 
make himself look, you, you know, mean. <laughs> That's what I do whenever I feel I need to look mean. It's a little <laughs> bit of dark eyeliner. And right now we're back with Dark Kirk in the transporter room. And he clearly is looking around, clearly got a lot of intense feelings, talks to a crew mem- member. And then we cut to Scotty and our good Kirk. And Scotty saying... It might profit you to let Dr. McCoy give you the one over. All right, engineer, I'll have my engines look too. And then he goes into his quarters and there is Yeoman Rain. And this is the this is her biggest episode, I would say. She's a lot going on here. Well, well, she this episode, you know, it's a shame that that her character was was written out for for a couple of reasons, and we can get into that later on. But this episode, Miri and yeah. Definitely Charlie X are her big standouts. She leaves Kirk's quarters and we're back in sick bay where the doctor is. I think it's Fisher is Fisher, the guy who right. got, yeah. Fisher got played by, and, yeah. Fisher played by Edward Madden. That's the actor's name. Edward Madden, uh, who I think does a great job in this small part. And and by the way, Fisher, the actor, Edward Madden, if he looks familiar to you, it's because he played one of the bridge officers in the cage. Oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, when they I when they never... beamed down to Talos Four, he was one of the uh, Enterprise crew members who you know were trying to shoot the top off of the mountain to to save Captain Pike. But mm. yes, he he uh, plays a different character, but but they they use the actor again. I thought he did a great job. Um, and while the doctor's cleaning him up, in walks Kirk, surly, difficult, and demands Saurian brandy. Is this our first mention of Saurian brandy? Yes, it yes it is. It is our first mention of Saurian brandy. What can I do for you, Jim? I said, give me the brandy. The way the Dark Kirk grabs McCoy by the back of his neck, squeezes yeah. his head, his head. The look on McCoy's face. The Forrest Kelly played it perfectly. He he was in shock. Like what just happened? It is such a scary scene. And I agree with you. I think Shatner's performance in this episode is great. I mean, does it go over the top a little, uh, a couple of times? I don't think when when Shatner really goes to that level in this episode, I think that makes the episode better. In later episodes, especially when we get to the third season, it's cause for why people kind of pick up on that and make fun of it. But I feel like for this episode, Shatner's delivery in both cases, as the good Kirk and the dark Kirk are right on point. So he gets his Saurian brandy. He heads out into the corridor. The music is great here. And the way the camera work and him just pounding the brandy. And then he gets to a door and we see that it is Yeoman Rand's quarters. And there is a music thing. And this is, again, what's weird watching it today and as a grown up is like, because I just I knew what was happening when I watched it as a younger person, but watching it now, it's just like it's very clear that his intention is to rape Yeoman Rain mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. this moment, mm-hmm. just from the looking at the door and the music sting. And he goes into her room, and we move into a close-up again with that music sting. And then what's what the show does a lot is has these abrupt cuts out of this music climaxing back to Good Kirk, where we're in this totally different tone. He has, he's in his quarters, he has his shirt off, and in comes this concerned Spock. Well, Dr. McCoy seemed to think that I should check on you. And Kirk goes, that's nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what I really like about it is that I love the way McCoy and Spock are handled in this episode. 
McCoy does the right thing. As soon as he, you know, Scotty says you should go to the doctor. McCoy sees this aberrant behavior, immediately calls Spock. Spock doesn't brush off McCoy. He know it is his duty to immediately check on Kirk, um, even though he walks in on this guy who seems perfectly fine. Yeah, yeah, I, I um, love, I love that Shatner is like, come on, Spock, I know that look. What is it? Well, our good doctor said that you were acting like a wild man. Demanded brandy. <laughs> Kirk just laughs it off, and, and Spock is is still concerned. I mean, he's not quite buying it. Now, the next scene is really where we 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 get to really take in the stakes of what's going on. And this is the first time that we see the good Kirk wearing the green wraparound shirt. So we're back in the transporter room, and some weird-looking alien space dog. Uh, which I'm guessing I'm guessing was a Pomeranian, but I'm not quite sure. So Scotty's holding the good dog. We beamed up this animal and well, look for yourself. It's in this specimen case. They look in the box and they see this rabid animal barking its head off with its with its teeth showing. And Scotty says, as soon as we beam this one up, that duplicate appeared, except it's not a duplicate. It's an opposite. We don't dare send Mr. Sulu and the landing party up. If this should happen to a man. Now, here's the thing, Steve. That moment when Kirk leans down, Kirk goes, oh, my God. That was originally going to be the end of the first act. Mm. It was going to end at that moment with the big music sting. But Leo Penn moved that earlier so that he could set it up earlier and move the the more dramatic moment that we're going to get to in a second later. But so as we're talking about the landing party, it's going to get cold on that planet. It's already cold. And now they can't beam them up. So we have to take this moment to address something that I've been hearing about for as long as I have seen this episode. Where the hell was the shuttlecraft? Where was the shuttlecraft? Do you have any theories at all as to why they just didn't send the shuttlecraft down? Because the story is better if you don't have a shuttlecraft. For sure. That's that's, that's the real thing. I mean, I I think we could say that the extreme cold weather is beyond the specs of the shuttlecraft, but that doesn't really make sense because it flies around in space. Right. So... um, I, I don't have a good answer. Uh, my first answer is my real answer. They said, Shh, they literally went, oh no, if we if we have to just ignore the shuttlecraft or our whole story falls apart. Okay, well, uh, fortunately I have, I have a good theory. Uh, of course you do. My, my theory about the <laughs> shuttlecraft is this. For one thing, the planet, even though it was a soundstage, you could see that it was very rocky. So there really wasn't any place for the shuttlecraft to even land. Mm, so sure. that's sort of the theory I go with the most is that where would the shuttlecraft even land to pick the landing party up? This this planet is has a very, very, very rocky terrain. The other, the other theory that I have, and for everybody listening, you know, maybe I'm out of my mind, maybe I overthink these things. The other theory is that this this adventure was very early in the voyage the five-year mission of the Enterprise. And well, the Enterprise just didn't have its shuttlecraft yet. 
It didn't have its four shuttlecraft yet. Sure. So, well, has there, there hasn't been the shuttlecraft on the show yet, right? No, we haven't introduced it. We have not so, introduced it. And here's why, Steve, because in actuality, the reason why they never built the shuttlecraft until a few episodes later was because they didn't want to pay the expense of building a model of building an interior until they knew for sure the season was going to get picked up for the full season. Right. And also they had uh, a deal with AMT, the model company to design the, the shuttlecraft. Uh, and they used that for, of course, um, the Galileo seven, but for this early into the season, the producers did not want to think about paying for an expense for something that they might only use a couple of times if it never even, right. you know, if, if it got canceled after, you know, 13 episodes, then, so that's why they did not build the shuttlecraft until a little bit later. I think people don't appreciate uh, how much the budget is involved in the writing. You might write blue sky, which means I'm just right. Whatever comes in my brain, I'm going to write the explosions and monsters and whatever. But then as soon as you're in production, we have to reduce that uh, script by 11 pages, four locations and three characters is the only way we make it. When I've been when I've written scripts frequently, I've learned all these tricks to make my 32 page script a 27 page script, because otherwise the studio just won't accept it. You know, <laughs> um, one more thing about this scene in the transporter room that I wondered this time is he sees the two dogs. He says, oh, my God, at the end of the scene. And I went, when does Kirk suspect? I actually watching Shatner this time I went. I think he already suspects. Interesting. Interesting take. So you think that Kirk at this point already suspects that it may have already happened to him. See, well, that I, that's something is wrong. I think is where I would go. See, you know, I always thought that he bends down and says, Oh my God, because he knows he can't beam the landing party up. And right. what are they going to do? They're going to freeze. That's what I've always thought too. At this point, I don't think that good Kirk knows what's happened to him because yeah. he walks into the transporter room. You would never know that anything was wrong with him. He's still in control. He's still decisive. He has not shown signs yet that he has started to deteriorate. And even by the end of the act, um, when he, they find out there's an imposter aboard, they're still not quite sure that it's half of him. Here's what I, here's how I would put it is like, and I'm sure you've had, you've had this experience where you're starting to know a thing, but you haven't faced, you know, like you, you don't always share your full suspicions early. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Whether it's that you're getting sick or whether that, you know, something is going to go wrong, particularly as the captain, by the way, is that captain, you know, you keep things to yourself until you know, um, all right, we're heading into Yeoman Rand's quarters. All right, this and is, this is a, the scene. This yeah. is the scene. Wow. And I, I think one way to what, what I would like to do is to approach it both in 1966 and talk about it today. Um, because I think it's, it's both are important. So we know that Kirk's in there already. She goes in, he's behind the screen, the lighting is very dramatic, and she immediately says, Oh. Here's what I think watching it this time. 
I felt, this is what I wrote down in my notes. I wrote from her look, you know, there is sexual harassment and rape in their time. That she knows that a man in her quarters who is drinking and looking at her in that way is dangerous. I think you can tell that right then in her performance. I, I agree with you. you. You can tell right there in her performance that she's scared. You know, he's holding the brandy and he's looking at her in a very, very suggestive way. By the way, even in 1966, there was concern from NBC that the scene was way too risque. And as far as I know from everything I read, this scene depicts the first attempted rape on broadcast television. That doesn't surprise me. And it is really scary. Now, in addition to looking at this from 1966 and looking at it from 2021, we also have to look at it in between because that's when we saw it. Yeah. So the question is, what did you think of this scene when you were watching it when you were younger? And how has it become more controversial and how does it resonate? I mean, it resonates so much more now because of yeah. what we've seen happen, certainly in Hollywood, but in businesses across the board over the last like five years alone. And, and the dialogue is so familiar today in terms of the stories we've heard from women in these situations. Can I help you, Captain? Jim will do here, Janet. You're too beautiful to ignore. So the first thing, in answer to what you're saying, how did I look at this differently when I saw it as a younger person versus today? Here's what I think the difference was for me personally. When I saw this as a kid or even as a young man, this was aberrant behavior. In other words, this was a crazy thing that was happening because Kirk had gone through this crazy thing. Today, I know that every single woman I've ever spoken to has experienced this in one way or another. Mm. This is not aberrant behavior at all. This is a behavior that basically all women have to deal with to some degree, or at the very least be frightened of. And most women have had this person. They've had this boss. They've had that guy, drunk guy at the bar that was stepping up to them. They've had the person who was you know, touching them inappropriately. All these stories that we've heard, this isn't aberrant behavior at all. This is the behavior that women have to deal with all the time. Into the 23rd century. Yeah, that, that's, a, yeah. that's an interesting point that for all of the advances that, that we, we will have made by the time we get to the 23rd century. And, and as we talked about before, humanity is not perfect. I mean, they may be a little better than they are today. They may be certainly striving towards perfection. But the fact that, that uh, sexual assault happens on the enterprise and it's only the fifth episode to air and it was because of this scene that the enemy within when it aired on this date it was the only time that the enemy within aired on it's on NBC TV it was never wow. it was never given a rerun so unless you were wow. watching this episode on uh, on October 6th 1966 if you missed it then, you would have had to wait till syndication to see it again. We've both been pretending too long. When Shatner grabs her and she shrieks. Stop pretending. Let's stop pretending. 
Don't fight me, Janice. And Kirk grabs her and throws her on the floor. I mean, this is... It's scary. It's scary. It is an attempted rape. It is genuinely scary. And she scratches his face and she makes her way to the door and then the door opens. And then she, you know, sees Fisher in the hall, gets the door open and says... The panic, the desperation in her voice. If she doesn't see Fisher, then... She's in big trouble. Dark Kirk, you know, rapes her. That's what's happening here. You got to give it to Grace Lee Whitney's performance in this episode. Uh, I, I thought that it, throughout her, her time on, on Star Trek, she did a just a, a wonderful job as Rand. It's such a powerful scene. It is such a scary scene, a disturbing scene. First of all, the whole idea that Rand was the captain's yeoman, but it was also supposed to be alluded to that that she was in love with the captain, but she couldn't do it because, you know, she he's yeah. the captain. He's the captain. Um, but like now this person that she's in love with, not only is this her captain, but this is a man that she is in love with secretly who is sexually assaulting her. And the scope of that scene whether it's 1966 or 2021 or every day in between, it is still a scene that provokes a reaction. It is still a scene that I think that that more than ever, more than ever now, uh, should start a conversation or be part of the conversation. And the fact that it happened in this episode in 1966, uh, if it's not the first scene of rape on TV, it's certainly one of the first. I can't. I couldn't find it written anywhere else where, where that happened. It always – a couple of different publications have, have mentioned that this episode was the first uh, rape scene. Mm. I can't imagine where else it would have happened. Mm, right. um, and, and just to take this a step further uh, in terms of theme is that in when we talked about the cage, we talked about the fact that the Orion sex slave scene, that it's essentially revealing that the main character has these fantasies that are really dark. Then we go to uh, where no man has gone before, where Kirk is talking to Daner and says, you know, all the terrible things that are in our in our minds, you know, that we would never dare do. Well, he'll dare. And now we get to this scene. And I just think it's really important to highlight the fact that, yes, this is a dark version of Captain Kirk. But this dark version of Captain Kirk wouldn't be doing this if somewhere in our Jim Kirk, this didn't exist. Oh, wow. You know, his because this is him. This is as much him as good Kirk Absolutely. is. Absolutely. That those thoughts of she's a beautiful woman and we can't ignore her anymore. And he knows they have to stop pretending. Every one of those thoughts is a thought that's been in his brain. Well, it's certainly the uh, affection that he has for Rand is in his brain. Uh, but the the darkest, savage, brutal, brutal method that he would act out on it is certainly kept in check by his, by his good side, by his courageous side, by his noble side, sensitive side. Uh, and it's just like what he says in a later episode. Uh, I think it's a, a taste of Armageddon. We can yeah. admit that we're killers, but we're not going to kill today. So yeah. this is a, a, a great point that you bring up, Steve, because this is a darkness that every single soul has that each one of us have. And this dark side has been separated from the other half of this person and is now there in its completely raw form. And this is what we are seeing. This is the result. And after 
Fisher runs to call Mr. Spock. Again, it, it, the violence continues when Dark Kirk jumps on Fisher, pushes him to the ground, and punches him in the face. And yep. another great cut by Leo Penn. After that fist comes down onto Fisher, the, the next cut is Kirk Shatner turning around. Me? My omen said that? I've been resting here since you left me. Alone, Mr. Spock. It's just a great cut. Uh, you know, this episode is so well done. It's so e- well edited. It's also, that's a great example. There's a rule in screenwriting, which is enter late and leave early. And what it basically means is we don't want to have every scene be, hey, Scott, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing okay. How are you? Well, I'm having an okay day. And then get to the important part. You want to skip the early stuff and get right to the important part. Cutting into Kirk saying me assumes that Spock has already described it. We skipped all that. We entered late, which is very good screenwriting. Um, I, I said that I wanted to talk a little bit about the brain and that this fascinates me. Here's my first one. Do you know the name Phineas Gage? No, I don't. Have you ever heard this name? Oh, wait, I, so, that's familiar, but you'll tell me. <laughs> if you've ever gone to Ripley's Believe It or Not or the Wax Museum or one of those places, you have seen him because he is a guy who, while working on a railroad, there's an explosion and it drove a steel spike through his head and he survived. And so he actually had a full hole in his head. And he had most of his memories. He could do most of the stuff he did before. He was pretty high functioning, except his personality completely changed. And that first thing that they noticed was he became slovenly. He had been a very neat person, and now he didn't care about his appearance. And he also didn't, he no longer had the same touch with morality. His moral code, the thing that stopped him from acting badly, that's part of what was damaged. And one of the interesting things is that these ideas of vanity and stuff like that are related to morality because part of our moral code comes from what people think about us. If you stop caring about what people think about you, then you stop caring as much about morality. And the reason that he's a really important person is he's one of the people where they started to figure out what different parts of the brain do. Because a lot of what we know about the brain comes from brain injuries because, oh, this part got injured and now they can't do that or now they can't do that. And here we have part of Captain Kirk where the the thing that is controlling him in terms of morality is in good Kirk. And so this is what he does. So that's why I go, even though this is a fantasy in terms of we can't really do this, but it's actually exploring ideas about the brain that are really interesting. Listen, th- th- there is this is more than just a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde story. There is some very deep, heavy psychoanalysis going on in this episode about the human condition. So bring in all that stuff that you that you hear about or read about elsewhere because it applies and it also reinforces what this episode is all yeah. about. Captain, Dr. McCoy reports that you demanded this brandy in sickbay and left with it. I found this bottle in Yeoman Rand's quarters. Not true. I haven't been to the sickbay. Let's find out what's going on. So as Kirk, uh, good Kirk and Spock walk into the turbo lift, the door closes. And just as the door closes, you see the dark Kirk and his bloody hand cut right into the center of the screen. Shatner walks in and he grabs his hand. He hears other sounds throughout the corridors and he's motioning like 
like a a, a uh, like an animal, an animal, like a, like, yeah, yeah. Like an animal instinct. And he goes into his quarters, and he gets on his bed. And again, another disturbing scene. He licks the the bloody top of his hand, and you know Shatner really goes for it in this episode. And I think that it's effective. I think it's effective. It you know the over the top argument can be made, but I think it's it's for the for the needs of this episode. And the need of the one outweigh the need of the many. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think he's. I think he's right on point. And I think part of what makes it work is I think Leo Penn supports it through his camera work because that shot of that hand coming into frame is totally unrealistic. It makes no sense at all, but it is super theatrical. And because Leo Penn is doing these theatrical choices with the lighting, with the camera movements, with the the then it makes it okay that Shatner's performance is as big and theatrical as it is. We're in sickbay, and Rand is telling her story. And he kissed me, and he said that we, that he was the cat, and, and, and he could order me. I didn't know what to do. And what's so disturbing, particularly watching it now, is there's Kirk. When you mentioned the feelings we've been hiding, and you started talking about us. Us. And he is standing over her. And this is what hit me this time mm-hmm. is essentially. So so it's 66. I or even me as a kid, as you asked before, I'm like, this is good, Kirk. He's not a bad person. And so it's OK that Rand is talking to him and she'll learn eventually that it wasn't really him that attacked mm-hmm. him. Yep. Yep. Watching it now, I went. So this woman was assaulted by her boss and she went to HR to say what had happened. And then HR brought her boss in, who is now standing over her, right. like in a real power position, telling her she's wrong. I never thought about it in this in this context, but because, yeah, I, I thought, oh, you're right. She's talking to the good Kirk. This guy didn't do it. But, we know that. But he, she is sitting there. Her mascara is running, and she's quivering. She's nervous. She's scared because she is not only confronting her attacker – She's confronting her captain, her boss, like you say. And so this scene was filmed a few days after the scene in Rand's quarters. So in the scene with Rand's quarters, Chrysler Whitney crushed it. She knocked it out of the park. So when she came to film this scene, uh, she was concerned that she wouldn't be able to get there again, go back to that place. So at one point, uh, Shatner was standing behind her and kind of playfully roughed her up a little bit, just to kind of shake her up. And she was startled by it. And she got into the character and she delivered the scene. And when the scene was finished filming, Shatner gave her a hug and said, that was beautiful. What's weird is what I had read is that, is that she said that Shatner slapped her. Oh, he slapped her. That's what somewhere it's I'd seen that Grace Lee Whitney said that Shatner slapped her. Wow. And that made her cry. So, well, and this it's, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, look, either way, I mean, I do know that he, you know, embraced her and just said that was great job, beautiful. I don't want to get you into trouble. I wouldn't have even mentioned it. It wasn't me. It was you, sir. And the way he jumps into the scene, like, mm-hmm. like he's, his face is beaten up. And he's like disheveled. He goes, and it's a quick cut. It's a quick cut. It's scary. This episode is so 
beautifully directed. Well, and the courage, because then Kirk, again, he's the boss. He's the most powerful person on the ship. Turns to him and says, you know what you're saying? And Fisher says, yes, I know know what what I'm I'm saying. saying. Mm -hmm. That means I'm going up against the captain. This is courageous of both Yeoman Rand and of Fisher to do what they're doing. Absolutely. That's a great, great point. So the good Kirk is just completely thrown. Like, what the heck is going on here? I didn't do this. And he just, he doesn't even have to say it. He just shakes his head, looks down, and then looks at Spock. There's only one logical answer. We have an imposter aboard. What's funny about that moment is that Spock is so short because he knows Kirk so well, I think. And the other thing is that, again, watch Shatner's performance. I think he is far less sanguine on this idea of the imposter than Spock is. I think he is shook by what is what he is seeing. It's commercial. We get back from commercial. We hear the temperatures are getting lower. We're in the transporter room. Does the transporter work at all? Yes, sir. But we don't dare bring up the landing party. It might be duplicated like this animal. We just can't leave those four men down there. It's getting dark. They'll die. This is the moment where if Kirk had any doubt before in the scene that you said earlier when he said, oh, my God, maybe he he's, he thinks maybe this happened to me. Okay, now we know because Kirk is holding the dog and he's starting to deteriorate. He's starting to lose his strength of will. He's starting to lose his ability to make decisions. About your double, Captain. Yes. Uh, yes. I'll have to find him. Search parties. Mr. Spock, organized search parties. Shatner standing there holding the dog like that. It, I felt like, and I certainly felt watching the other day, that this is a way to give Kirk, the good Kirk, a, a more vulnerable look, to make him look more sensitive and vulnerable. And we can see already that when they're talking about finding, you know, the imposter, Kirk is like indecisive. But the men have to be armed. The men are to be armed, but the face is locked. He's losing his strength of will. And Spock has to remind him that, you know, you can't tell the crew about this because you can't be anything less than perfect in their eyes or they'll they'll lose faith and you'll lose command. But this is all happening at a, at a quicker pace now because it is a race against time. This is the ticking clock aspect. So in the original draft that Matheson did, it was all about Kirk being split in two. And in that original draft, the Dark Kirk was, was actually full on evil. He was much, much, much more primal. And Roddenberry liked the whole idea of the episode, but he felt like something was missing. That's something, as Roddenberry came to know, was we need to raise the stakes. There has to be this, this, this can't be just about putting Kirk back together again. This has to be done within a time limit or the men on the planet's surface will die. So it was Roddenberry who introduced the idea 
of the B plot, the subplot with having the men freezing on the planet. We got to be in the back before they freeze to death. Now, Matheson didn't like that idea where he wasn't crazy about it because he wanted it to all be about Shatner. He just, he thought anything else was going to take away from that. And he thought it would slow the story down. I think it speeds the story up. I think the addition of that subplot was a great move on the part of Roddenberry to be a producer and a writer and to make Matheson's screenplay better. I think it's absolutely better. I think it's a great move. I think it adds so much pressure and dynamics to the story. And it makes every single decision that Kirk has to make more difficult, more time constrained, more consequential. And and here's the thing is that I think this is how you do a B plot is that in a great script, a B plot is part of the A plot. It supports the A plot. It makes the A plot more dramatic. And if you look at later, and I know we've been occasionally bashing some later Star Trek, (laughs) is that I think the way they handle B-plots in Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and later on is frequently terrible. I agree. Because it's a structure. They go, oh, well, we have to have an A-plot and a B-plot. No, you don't. You have to have a great story. If you have a B-plot that supports the A-plot, great. Otherwise, don't have it. And so you have all these episodes where it's like... You know, the Enterprise is being attacked by aliens and and Alexander is having trouble at school, you know, and it's like, I don't care about that. Like, so you would end up using up 20 percent of your of your super important screen time to tell a story that's not that interesting. Yeah, I I agree. I I feel like without that B-plot, they could take their time trying to figure out how to put Kirk back together. But, you know, you got these guys are going to freeze. They're not going to make it through the night, let alone having the transporter repaired in a week. And I think it's a great B-plot. And like you said, yeah. it, it absolutely services and makes the A story even better. And uh, again, I think that was a very, very smart move on Roddenberry's part. So when when Kirk is back on the bridge and he addresses the crew that there is an imposter, not the dark side of me, but an actual imposter. This is the captain speaking. There's an imposter aboard the ship. The Dark Kirk is in his quarters, and the look on Shatner's face with the the sweat and his hair's messed up and the dark eyeliner is is a bit darker, and he flips out, I'm Captain Kirk. Repeat, the imposter is not to be injured. I'm Captain Kirk. What's your take on that scene, Steve? This is the scene where I think Shatner goes too far. I think this is just, this is, you know, he's been walking that edge of theatricality and I, I wish that it was, a, it was pulled back a little bit. I mean, I like the, the idea of the scene is great. Um, but, but yeah, this is the one scene where I go, uh, that was a little too much for me. See, I, I like it. I know that that image, <laughs> you know, that sort of JPEG uh, or that uh, meme <laughs> yeah. when he's making that, that face, but uh, again, I think that it's for the for the needs of this episode, it definitely serves its purpose. But he's still smart enough to know that he has to cover up his scars and compose himself if he's going to get out of his quarters. And it's a good thing the good Kirk didn't walk in on the bad Kirk or else we wouldn't have the rest of the episode. When he is about to walk out and he sees Wilson. Wilson, give me a phaser. The actor who played Wilson was Garland Thompson. Uh, he goes... Uh, Yes, sir. And then he knocks him out, puts him in his quarters. I just love the way the next scene plays out. 
because we are in the briefing room and Kirk is talking to Sulu. It's getting colder. It's already 20 degrees below zero. And exactly call it follow me. I love the fact that they gave Sulu a personality. Is that every one of his lines is kind of, he's joking, he's he's interesting. He could just be saying, really cold, sir. Yeah, he's trying and to joke around. Yeah. But he said he says, you know, I wouldn't exactly call it balmy. He talks <laughs> about them sending coffee down. It's funny, it's funny. Um, it's great stuff for his character. So the back and forth between the good Kirk and, and Spock. Apparently, this double, however different in temperament, has your knowledge of the ship. Knowing how the ship is laid out, where would you go to elude a mass search? And the good Kirk, like, he gets it. He goes, the lower levels, the engineering deck. It's great scene. I love the idea that we, we're going to trap this guy because he's me. So what would I do? I think that's really smart. I also think, so this is on our next step on our, our journey through the brain, that what, what I was thinking about was that we have to create metaphors for consciousness. Like, how do we think about thinking? How do we think about our identity? How do we think about the brain? And, you know, it used to be that someone had bad behavior. Oh, they were, you know, possessed by a demon. That's what made them, you know, it's the, it's the devil in you that is making you do these bad behaviors. And then later on, we go to like the bodily humors so that he had an excess of phlegm or yellow bile or something. And that's what causes these behaviors. And then you get to Freud and we have the id, the ego and the superego. And I think the writers were really thinking Freud because I think Dark Kirk is the id. The id is the desires, all of the carnal desires, everything we want. Um, the ego is the intellect and control and the superego is morality. So Dark Kirk gets the id and Good Kirk has the ego and the superego. Um, and it's a, it actually splits up. Now, these ideas of id, ego and superego really have nothing to do with it. what our brain does. It's just a, it's a mental construct to think about this stuff. But I am certain that they were thinking id, ego, and superego when they were writing this. Scene. Again, another completely worthy analysis that, that fits perfectly with this episode. So so now this episode, Steve, The Enemy Within, is the first time that we see the engineering deck. Oh, So cool. now we see Scotty's home away from home, which uh, was designed, of course, by Matt Jeffries, who designed everything inside and outside the Enterprise. So Kirk and Spock, a good Kirk and Spock, are, are now in engineering and and uh, Spock suggests getting help. No, I don't want anyone else to see me. Captain, you ordered me to tell you, Mr. Spock, if I'm to be the captain, I've got to act like one. Saul Kaplan's score throughout the rest of the scene is just so great when they're looking around for the, uh, the Dark Kirk. And the, the reveal when... The Dark Kirk steps out of the shadow. So the actor who played Kirk's double, uh, who stood in for the evil Kirk, and you see his back the whole time, his name's Don Eitner. There's a moment where they clearly lock down the camera to do a lockdown camera shot, which is similar to how they did like the hand, which is you see good Shatner, good Kirk, and then he walks out of frame, and then you stop rolling the camera, and then he changes his costume and then nobody can touch the camera and you have Dark Kirk appear and it looks as if Kirk walked out on the right and Dark Kirk came in on the left. And this is the one where Dark Kirk drops down, I think, from above. 
but someone nudged the camera. And so the camera bounces. It only, if you just breathe on the camera wrong, this effect won't work. And so someone nudged it and you could see like, oh, they almost had it just right, but it doesn't quite work because it bounces. Just yeah, a you, could bit. See, you could see, you could see a real quick little thing. But, yeah. you know, it was 1966, you know, you, 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 you give it a break. Yeah, you take your best shot. Yeah, 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 totally. The exchange between the two of them at this point, the like the, the look that they gave each other, this is the first time they're actually seeing each other. And the good Kirk is at attention, but the dark Kirk is like, like almost like sniffing him out, like a like a like a rabid dog. The good Kirk tries to reason with him. Don't you understand? I'm part of you. You need me. I need you. At this point, something happens which completely changes the foundation of Star Trek and, in particular, the character of Mr. Spock. We see for the first time, certainly in, in terms of production order, we see Leonard Nimoy's first use of the famous Vulcan neck pitch. <laughs> So the famous Vulcan neck pinch, it became so regarded that when the producers were writing future episodes, they would actually have a part in their future scripts where it would say Spock applies the FVNP, which stands for (laughs) famous Vulcan neck pinch. So such a plot point for the Spock character you would think that a lot of a lot of thought went into that. But in actuality, Steve, as the scene was filmed, Spock is supposed to come out from behind this uh, this partition in engineering and club the Dark Kirk over the head with the butt of his phaser. And Leonard Nimoy, in his infinite wisdom, said, I don't think that's something that Spock would do. What would this character who's at least half of his heritage is from another planet. What would this character do? So he went over to Leo Penn, the director, and said, this is what I think Spock should do. He should, he should pinch his neck and the Dark Kirk should, should faint. So William Shatner was overhearing all this. So he went over to where the two men were standing and Leonard Nimoy applied the, the neck pinch on Shatner and right on cue, Shatner fell to the ground. At that moment, the FVNP, the famous Vulcan neck pitch, neck pitch was born. And you would think that Roddenberry would be thrilled that such a unique and amazing development of, of the Spock character was introduced to story. But because it happened without Roddenberry's knowledge, Roddenberry actually later sent Leonard Nimoy a memo saying, hey, that was a really great idea, but basically saying, next time run it by me first, because for continuity reasons, you know, and then other actors started introducing their own ideas and you know what happens with that. So <laughs> instead of praising him for coming up with a brilliant, a brilliant idea, like 
you know, you get this memo, like, like, don't ever do that again. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. And I think it's really, it's, it's Shatner's performance in that moment is part of what makes it so great and so memorable. And I'll tell you, the, the world, I'll try to make this world's fastest digression is, uh, I don't know if I've mentioned to you, I've done martial arts for a long time and I studied Aikido and the scariest martial artist I've ever met was a guy named Sensei Walter Murias who was an Aikido guy. And I watched him throw five guys around who attacked him with swords. I see, I mean, it was just, he did the craziest stuff. And there's a technique uh, in Aikido called Sankyo, which is a three joint lock. So you lock up the wrist, the elbow and the shoulder. And it's very painful. And <laughs> he was teaching a class and he said, okay, let's all do Sankyo. We all did it. And then he said, okay, but you can do it with just two joints. So you just grab the forearm and lock up the elbow and the shoulder. And I could do that. That wasn't so hard. And then he said, but you could also do it just with one joint. And you could just grab the arm and lock up the just the shoulder joint. And I watched, I was at a camp. And I watched 50 people, including tons of black belts. Nobody could do it. I couldn't do it. Nobody could do it. And Sensei Waltz is walking around. And he's just this old skinny guy. It looks like nothing. And he's walking around and showing people. And he walks up to me and my partner and says, Here's how you do it. And he grabs me by the sh- by the sh- upper arm. I swear to God, my whole body froze. Up. Oh, wow. It was so painful. I was just like, and then until he let me go. And then I went, oh, it was crazy. And then he said, that's how you do it. And he walked away. None of us could do it. I, to this day, I have no idea how that's possible. But it was seriously true. Wow. wow, wow. Um, <laughs> like, see, now the next scene, the, the next scene that we see in the sick day is such a such a crucial scene to to Star Trek as a whole. What's the matter with me? Judging from my observations, Captain, you're rapidly losing the power of decision. You have a point, Spock? Yes, always, Doctor. You have here an unusual opportunity to appraise the human mind or to examine, in Earth terms, the roles of good and evil in a man. This is where you really start to see the dynamic of this relationship, of this constant tug of war that Kirk was always tr- always caught in the middle of between Spock and McCoy. The captain's guts you're analyzing. Are you aware of that, Spock? Yes. And what is it that makes one man an exceptional leader? We see here indications that it is his negative side which makes him strong. That his evil side, if you will, properly controlled and disciplined, is vital to his strength. This scene is so integral and so crucial to the development of the Kirk Spock McCoy relationship, so crucial to the development of Star Trek, certainly the original series, uh, and it it it's such an amazing scene because while Spock and McCoy are going back and forth, and then Spock takes a beat. If I seem insensitive to what you're going through, Captain, understand, it's the way I am. It's such a great friggin' scene. And Leonard Nimoy was actually concerned at this point that Spock and McCoy were bickering. He was afraid that the fans would be turned off to see these two beloved characters. I mean, even though it was early in the the show, that these two characters would would bicker. And what he soon came to realize was that the bickering relationship between Spock and McCoy – actually became a fan favorite. The fans loved when when those two would go at it. So, so, so many things about this. The first one is 
This is a basic, basic rule of screenwriting is you always want to have conflict. If I try to do exposition without conflict and just say, oh, this has happened to Kirk and blah, 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 blah. It's really boring. But when you have two people arguing about the truth, all the exposition is fun because we're hearing all this information, but we're hearing it in a way that has conflict. And the other thing is, is that conflict always reveals character. So if I put, it's putting Spock and Bones arguing against each other that defines who they are. Now we understand their personalities. If they just said the stuff, it wouldn't do it. And the other thing about this scene that I think is so interesting, this is the heart of the movie, I think, this scene, because this is where we express the idea that even though this is good Kirk, that he has lost things, that there are parts of him that he needs that are in the evil side. And to me, this is like a perfect example of like the image of yin and yang, where we have the darkness, but inside the darkness is some piece of the light. And we have the light and inside the light is a piece of the darkness. Is that, well, let me ask you this question. Yeah. What do you think of this idea that your negative side is necessary for you being who you are? Well, I, I completely subscribe to that. And I subscribe to that because of the argument that McCoy makes in the, in the next act, you know, we'll, we'll get to that in a bit, but uh, I absolutely, after watching this episode, especially numerous times, completely believe that, that we as people need our darker side in order to survive our, uh, it, it's it's through our our darker side that we our our strength comes from our decision making ability comes from, uh, but it's it's the it's the it's the good side where where courage comes from. For me, I've thought about this ever since I was a kid. This episode has made me think of this idea forever, and I think it is so true in so many ways. I mean, one is is that just our desires is part of what helps us to work really hard. Mm -hmm. If you didn't really want that thing, even if that thing, you know, where it's money or fame or whatever, like that drives us forward. And I'll give, I'll give um, two quick examples in my own life of where I thought of this. The one is, is, you know, most people know me know I've always struggled with my weight and there've been various times where I've lost 30 pounds, 50 pounds. Once I lost 80 pounds Wow! and there, you would think that the thing that would motivate me would be my health and how I feel. Those are the most important things. But no, it was vanity. Vanity is the biggest motivator for losing weight, you know, and vanity is not a positive quality. And the other example I'll give is, um, as I mentioned, I've done martial arts for a long time. The, the guy who I did the most martial arts with, my closest friend in the world, our friendship ended in a really horrible, terrible way. Uh -huh. And after he was no longer my friend, there wasn't a moment that I went onto the mat to study martial arts that I didn't think of him. And he was always better than me. He was a second degree black belt before I was a black belt. And I really believe that the ending of that friendship is part of what got me to my own black belt. Mm, wow. Is that being competitive with him, being angry with him, being hurt by him, love, still loving him because he's still a person who I, you know, this guy's like my brother who I haven't seen in a decade. But like he walked with me onto my mat every time I stepped on there because that was our entire history. And so what drove me to work harder and really train hard was a lot of negative feelings, you know? So I really think this idea is true. Wow. Well, that's a, that's a great example to support that theory. So as if it wasn't bad enough that you have the men trapped on the planet and that Kirk is split in two, 
now there's a new tr- problem with the transporter and that the it can't be repaired in less than a week. Well, sorry, these guys aren't going to make it through the next few hours. So you're not only do you have this subplot going on, but the subplot just kicked into a higher gear, yeah. making the A story kick into a higher gear. And that brings us to the third act where it's now 75 degrees below zero and Sulu uses his hand phaser to heat the rocks. I love Sulu's whole thing about... I think we ought to give room service another call. That coffee's taking too long. He's really uh, you know, trying to stay positive and, and, and look at the glasses half full and, and trying to uh, add and some levity the to the situation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Kirk is uh, you know, hearing this and he's just so distraught. But we are back in sickbay too. Kirk is uh, screaming. The dark Kirk is screaming. He's not dying. Yes, he is. Help me. How can he die? How can I survive without him? This is where the courage of the good Kirk comes in, and it's a a split-screen effect for 1966, where you see William Shatner and William Shatner on the same screen. Now, uh, this was a scene that terrified cinematographer Jerry Finnerman to do, but he did it. He pulled it off. And Jerry, Jerry Finnerman, the cinematographer, director of photography, did an amazing job again on this episode and throughout his entire run on, on Star Trek, two and a half years that he worked on the show. And the effect of seeing good Kirk on the left side wearing the green shirt and the dark Kirk on the bed wearing the, the gold command shirt. You don't have to be afraid. I won't let go. Hold on. You won't be afraid if you use your mind and think. Think. You can do it. That's it. And he stabilizes his his readings. How does he do that? How does he stabilize him? He connects with him. He's holding his own hand. And he brings him back. He brings the dark Kirk back from the brink. You know, Kirk is starting to doubt, like, you know, how long can I keep this up? You know, I, how can I live without him? And McCoy is saying, we need our darker side to survive the strength of command lies in your darker side. What do I have? The intelligence, the logic. It appears your half has most of that. And perhaps that's where man's essential courage comes from. Where you see, he was afraid and you weren't. I mean, that is great writing, my friend. Well, and I'll tell you the thing that hit me this time that had never hit me before. And again, maybe this comes from being older. Maybe it comes from certain life experiences. But this is a story about self-acceptance. This is a story about self-forgiveness. Imagine everything you hate about yourself is in front of you. And then seeing, seeing that and somehow learning to love or accept that and taking the hand of the monster that's inside of you. Kirk says in this scene, he says, I don't want to take him back. He's like an animal, a thoughtless, brutal animal. But he's but me. He's me. He's me. <laughs> I mean, imagine bringing all that out and learning to accept it. Like, yeah, this is me. This is a part of who I am. Um, I, w- are you ready for my next step in our journey of the brain? Go for it. <laughs> this so, is so fascinating. So I just love this stuff. So I've just, for years and years, I've I've read a lot about it. And like, so when you have 
when you're thinking in your head and you're thinking, oh, I got to do this and I got to do this, that's basically your frontal cortex. That's this section of your brain up here. It is humans have way bigger frontal cortexes than any other animal. And we think that I make a decision and then I do that. So I decide I'm going to do this thing and then I go do the thing. And we feel like we're in control. That voice, but we're not. So I'm going to tell you my, because there's all these other parts of our brain that are doing, which are much bigger, that are doing stuff all the time that we're not aware of. So I'm going to tell you my favorite brain experiment. Here's the experiment. Gather a bunch of like grad students into a room and you go up to them. And it's like, this is an experiment about memory. And so what we're going to do, we're going to give you each a number and your job is just to memorize the number. And then at a certain point, we're going to call your name. You're going to go down the hall. You're going to take a left. You're going to take a right. You're going into the room on your left. And you're going to tell the person there your number. And to some of the people, they go up and they say, your number is 7438256. As the person is going, okay, 7438256. And then they go up to someone else and say, your number is 12. And they're like, that's easy. And so we have one group of people going 7438296. And another person going, that's ah, 12. And then they call each person's name. And the person goes, out the door, down the hall, to the right, to the left. And just before they're about to go into the door where they say their number, they get stopped. Because it's not an experiment about memory. Because the person who stops and says, hey, we just want to thank you so much for coming down. We really appreciate you helping us with this experiment. I've got a cart of food and I just want to know if you would you like some fresh fruit or would you like some chocolate cake? In a ratio of two to one, the people with the long number choose the chocolate cake. And the reason is, is because the thing that stops you from eating the chocolate cake is the frontal cortex. That's the limiter, is that you have all this things in your body that go, mm, chocolate cake, yeah, chocolate cake, yeah. good. Right, right. <laughs> and the frontal cortex says, no, you shouldn't have that. You're trying to lose weight. You, you know, you've got a big meal coming on. Don't do it. But if the frontal cortex is busy going 7368429 or whatever the number was I said before, it's distracted. And now those other parts of the brain will take over. How many times in your life when you were stressed out, did you make other decisions which you really didn't want to make, like eating the chocolate cake? Like going to in and out burger and get a large chocolate shake and exactly. a hamburger and fries like last exactly. night? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so this is so what we think is I'm making the decisions. We're not. Mm. There are all these different parts of our brains that are arguing. And then what we do is we rationalize. Oh, that's really what I, I wanted to go to in and out. That was the right decision to make. But it was really these other parts of your brains that decided it for you. And the, the, the analogy that I love is it's like a guy riding on the back of a tiger and he's holding on to the reins. He's like, I'm totally telling the tiger where to go. I want to go left. And the tiger goes left. I want to go right. The tiger goes right. No, the tiger is deciding where to go. You're just having the illusion of control. Interesting. Wow. This is uh, much deeper than I ever expected to go on a Star Trek episode. But Well, that's why I wanted to bring this up. Because even though they had none of this brain research in 1966, you could say that the frontal cortex, the limiter on all those instincts, is in the good Kirk and is missing from the dark Kirk. Well, we are we are now back in the transporter room, and we gotta try Scotty's test out with the dog, with the space dog. First of all, when they're trying to grab the evil dog, and Kirk says, 
Don't hurt him. It's so tender, you know? What a subtle but very effective motion to show how the good Kirk is becoming even more sensitive. Like he says, don't hurt him. I mean, it was such a beautiful little moment, but so effective. You know what I love? What, what, what I love in this moment? Watch Kirk. It's the suspense, the, the tension that as it builds, because they, they wait a few beats before they start to reverse the transporter to bring it back. And like you said, watching Shatner, he's holding on to the transporter, the station, the transporter station. Like he's holding on to it for like dear life. Like, please work. They reverse. You hear the sound effect that is beaming back onto the platform. And we hear another Star Trek first. He's dead, Jim. The dog has died. What does that mean? Do we even go further to try it out on a human? And what's interesting, when we come back from commercial, we hear Captain's Log, except it's Mr. Spock. Entry made by Second Officer Spock. But he says Kirk retains command, but his force of will is fading. And here's the thing, by the way, in my opinion, Spock should have taken command three acts ago. But Kirk did not want to relinquish command. He says, if I'm to be the captain, I've got to act like one. For the sake of his own like mental health to get through this, Kirk has to stay in command. He, 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 he has to hold on to that last vestige of his normalcy to stay in command. You're right. Because Spock probably should have taken over at that point. But yeah, by this point, Spock is reading the captain's log, which is a sign that Kirk is losing more of his uh, ability to command. Well, and that's what we see in this scene yep. because, because we have Spock saying, we're going to have to move forward with the transporter. And Kirk goes, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. And then Bones says, whoa, 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 we could take a little more time, do some more research, give t- Scotty time to work on the transporter. And Kirk goes, yeah, that sounds reasonable. Aren't you forgetting something, Captain? No, I don't think I've forgotten. Your men on the planet's surface, how much time do they have left? Yes, that's right, the men. And McCoy says something that's very out of character for him, which is he's basically arguing to let the guys on the planet die. He says, Suppose death was caused by a transporter malfunction. Then you'd die. They'd die anyway. Jim, you can't risk your life on a theory. Well, yeah. And then you get this line from Mr. Spock. Being split in two halves is no theory with me, Doctor. I have a human half, you see, as well as an alien half, submerged, constantly at war with each other. I survive it because my intelligence wins out over both, makes them live together. Your intelligence would enable you to survive as well. Amazing scene. And I wonder I wonder if that was a Matheson scripted line or a Roddenberry scripted line. Um, because, again, such an integral integral part of of the character of Spock. And and this is this is a great moment. The utter helplessness when Kirk says help me. Somebody make the decision. And then Spock challenges him in that and says, "Are you relinquishing command?" And he goes, "No. No, I'm not." Like he will not let go of his command. He is holding on to his command because he is holding on to himself for dear life. Mr. Spark, ready the transporter room. Bones, continue the autopsy. And that is when we have one last call to Sulu, where Sulu is freezing to death. It's 117 
below zero on the planet's surface. And we see that Kirk is motivated, like, I have to do this. And Dark Kirk is on the bed and says, What are you going to do? Go through the transporter. Both of us. And the Dark Kirk kind of tricks him into bringing him closer and knocks him out, smashes him across the face with his phaser, and then puts some scratch marks on his face. So the Dark Kirk scams him. He manipulates him. It's the Dark Kirk that did the Corbomite maneuver. Mm -hmm. That's right. That skill of the the trickster, the the person who comes up with a cool strategy, that's in the Dark Kirk because that's exactly what he does here. So we are out in the hall and the the Dark Kirk has now disguised himself in a green wraparound uniform and confronts Janice Rand. Gilman, I owe you an explanation. No. Yes, I do. The transporter malfunction divided me created a duplicate and he says i'd like to explain it to you you don't mind if i come to your quarters later and Rand, Ugh. she takes a beat and she says no sir and kirk the dark kirk gets in the tober lift and ran is just horrified like what is she thinking at that moment do you think well the, the first question i asked in my notes was i said well does she know this is the dark kirk and then i went no of course she knows like if she if she knows that Dark Kirk exists, which is a question, but if not, if she doesn't know that Dark Kirk exists, then this is her the guy who attempted to rape her, saying he's going to rape her again. You know, oh. that's what the scene is. Well, I she, I think she knows that that's the evil Kirk. I think she knows that that's the Dark Kirk. Apparently, you order, Mister Carl. And he comes in with swagger. Yeah, he comes in like Kirk. Captain, I gave you an order, Mister Carl. But what about... They can't be saved. Prepare to leave orbit. And the Dark Kirk sits in the captain's chair with an evil little smile. And then you hear the doors open. And the good Kirk comes up, comes aboard the bridge with McCoy. Grab him. He's the imposter. No! And by this point, the gig is up. Spock is giving him yeah. the evil eye. And then he finally loses it. I'm the captain! As you understand, I'm captain of the ship! This is my ship! The way the scene plays out with the good Kirk, the the courage, and that he is trying to reason with him and sort of play to his weakness. Can half a man live? And the good Kirk, who seems physically weaker, moves forward, faces down that phaser, faces down his doppelganger, not with violence or aggression, but frankly with, with love. And we'll both die. And when... The Dark Kirk screams, I want to live. I want to live. I mean, it's great drama. I want to live! I mean, it's such a beautifully directed and written scene. And this is where it really moved me of self-forgiveness, of self-acceptance, of saying, here is this ugly side of myself. And because Kirk wins with love. And well, and this is the thing I want to point out is our way of thinking about this show, I think, or mine always has been, is that good Kirk is the real Kirk. You know, he's the one I'm identifying with. And the other thing is like a bad thing. Yeah, that's kind of a part of him. But most of my Kirk that I like is in good Kirk. Yes, I agree. But I think it actually is more 50-50. I think, you know what I mean? Like, I think looking at it in a more mature way, the bad sides of you, that's you too. Mm -hmm. Well, that's no, what we've been saying all along. I yeah. mean, it's it's we said this at the top of the episode to say, oh, oh, uh, the good Kirk is the real Kirk and this imposter is evil. Like, 
the the dark Kirk is just as much of Captain Kirk as the good Kirk. You yep. could certainly say I identify more with the good Kirk because because you want to identify more with the good Kirk. Exactly. You do not exactly. want to admit that you have the darkness inside of you that makes you relate to the dark Kirk just as much as you relate to the good Kirk. It is a 50-50 split. You can't put 90% of your of your relatability on the good one and 10% on the on the bad one. The fact is you are every person who has ever seen this episode has just as much darkness as goodness and that is we've just seen them split in this episode and they are the dark kirk is just as much of captain kirk as the good one and when they they embrace and they are they are in the the transporter room again and and the good kirk is holding on to the the dark kirk and he and he says that's fine captain if this doesn't work understood captain basically saying don't let us live that's what i was going to ask you i don't know he says if this doesn't work and spock goes understood now is he saying this doesn't work take command and you know do what you need to do or is he saying if this doesn't work if we beam back aboard and we have like four arms and two heads and we're we're in pain do a mercy killing on us that's what i always thought he was deluded i never had that thought ever but that's totally motivatable i think that could that's very possible. Like I think, I, th- I think he was saying, you know, if if we beam back aboard and we're still alive, but this doesn't work, you know, pull the plug, you know, put us out of our misery. You know, I think well, that's this is what's a, going on here. I think this is a great question for our audience: is like, how do you interpret all of you listening? How do you interpret this moment? What does Spock understand when he says "understood, Captain"? Yeah. One thing I really like that I never noticed until watching it this time is there's this eye contact moment with McCoy and Kirk. And I love that Kirk is all the strength or good Kirk is all the strength supporting bad Kirk. And there's this moment where he makes eye contact with McCoy and there's the, just the whiff of a smile on Kirk's face. And at that moment, you hear just a little bit of the Star Trek. Mr. Spock. And I never noticed it before, but I was like, Oh, that's the foreshadowing that this is going to work. I think that little smile came from the support that he had from McCoy through all this. But also the good Kirk is, is he's like proud of himself for having the courage to embrace the dark Kirk on the bridge and get to this moment mm. where they are about to try Scotty's theory out to see if this works. That's what I saw in that smile. So they energize the transporter and again, it's taking a little while. We definitely drag it out for dramatic effect they, here. They drag it out. And then McCoy even goes, well, Mr. Spock. And Spock finally beams Kirk aboard as one person. Not, no longer good Kirk or dark Kirk. And McCoy looks at him and says, and then Kirk says, get those men aboard fast. Right away, Captain. Shatner, who has been great through this whole episode, the vulnerability of good Kirk, the intensity and scariness of bad Kirk and the fear, and then to, in one moment, get those men back aboard. Just like, there he is. He's back. He's back. He's back. There's Kirk. And so this next moment, 
where they beam the men aboard. McCoy says, oh, they'll be fine. It's, they've got some str- frostbite and stuff like that. Eh, no biggie. Yeah, no biggie. <laughs> you know, it's only 117 degrees below zero. McCoy says, how do you feel, Jim? I've seen a part of myself no man should ever see. I always thought the line should be, how do you feel, Jim? I feel like a new man. <laughs> that would have been the great line. In fact, I remember when I was younger, so much younger than today, I was watching the episode <laughs> with my older brother and it was his first time watching it. And we were, we were watching it in the, in the den, you know, and when Kirk, when McCoy said, how do you feel, Jim? My brother said, I feel like a new man. And then Kirk <laughs> says, and I, and so ever since my brother said that, I always felt like, yeah, that actually would have been the better line. So, but we are back on the bridge. Kirk sees Rand. The imposter told me what happened. Oh. Who he really was. And I'd just like to say that, well, sir, what I'd like to say is that. What do you think she was going to say? See, okay, there's a lot of weird stuff in this. And I think this is the difference between 1960 and today. I think what the writers wrote, because it also relates to Spock's horrible last line. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. Is that I think what they were, what the writers are thinking is that now it's come out as much as it was a horrible situation. It's come out that Kirk has admitted his attraction to Yeoman Rand and that it's been acknowledged. And so I think they are hinting that she's saying, I'm attracted to you too. And looking at that today, and particularly because the the Spock line that he says to Rand, he says, the posture had some interesting qualities. Wouldn't you say? Human. Awful line. I hate that line. <laughs> I, I, the note I wrote down is creep. Like what a horror. It's like lascivious and it is prying and it's purient and it's just, that is an ugly, nasty line. And I, I read somewhere that Grace Lee Whitney hated that line too. And I think that's a Roddenberry line. Because it was so early in, the production of the series and Leonard Nimoy was still trying to figure out how to play Spock. And they were still trying to figure out how to write Spock in some ways. If this episode had been produced like halfway into the season, that line never would have happened because Spock wouldn't have been such a wise ass. He was still in his wise ass phase yeah. that he was in like Mud's women and the corporal might maneuver. This is the captain speaking. Navigator set in course correction. Helmsman steady as she goes. And that brings us out of the enemy within. So I have one more tiny bit of brain stuff. And then is, and then I'd love to hear what your final thoughts on this episode yeah. are. Mm-hmm. Here's the time. I just listened recently to a podcast, Sam Harris's podcast, Making Sense, which is a great, super intellectual podcast. His guest was Lane McGilchrist, who is a guy who is studying the left and right hemispheres of the brain. And what's really freaky is that it might be that we have two consciousnesses in our head, we just don't talk to the other one. Because in left right brain injuries where they've been severed, because they do all this stuff and they talk to each other. But there's some injuries where they've been severed and literally have people have their right hand doing things that their left hand didn't know what they're doing. Like the right hand grabs something to eat, the left hand puts it back and they go, where's the thing I wanted to eat? Because they're literally having two consciousness, two ideas simultaneously in your brain. So even though they didn't have any of the science when they did the enemy within there. There's actually so much that really points to some real science um, about how we conceive of how our brains work. 
Okay, so one one thing I, I love reading about is what the actors and the filmmakers who made these episodes, what they thought of the episodes. So I have some uh, uh, reaction here. Uh, William Shatner was on the Mike Douglas show in 1968, and he admitted that The Enemy Within had been his favorite episode so far because uh, it was um, you know, still in production. And the interesting thing is when William Shatner was on Saturday Night Live in 1986, and he did that famous Get a Life scene, and he said, oh, uh, 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 that was really uh, my imitation of the evil Kirk from uh, The Enemy Within, episode number, th- <laughs> episode number 37. So I remember when I was watching that episode in, in, in 1986 with my parents, and I turned to my parents and I said, that wasn't episode number 37. That was episode number five. <laughs> so my, my brother looked at me and said, get a life. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Richard Matheson said, I thought Bill Shatner was brilliant. I love what he did. He carried the whole thing. And the director, Leo Penn, said, William Shatner is a very good actor and gave a very good performance. I had a good time on that show. As for what I thought of the episode, this has always been one of my favorites. It is a an absolute bonafide classic. It is absolutely an episode that you should include in your binge of Star Trek across all its forms. And I just think that for such an early episode, it was so crucial to the development of the Kirk-Spock-McCoy relationship that, that I treasure that. And again, because I've always been just a big Kirk fan uh, I, and I just love Shatner's performance in this episode, re-watching this episode with a different set of eyes to talk about it with you here on Enterprise Incidents, you know, I saw things that I was able to appreciate more, certainly as a grown-up, uh, and certainly things that I was able to look at through the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement. Um, and it is just overall, it's a great, it's great dramatic television. One of the best dramatic episodes of television in TV history, I think. I think it's a great episode. I feel like I've said a lot of what I think, but this is what I'll, I'll, I'll just sum it up with. I think what makes this such a good piece of television is that we can interpret it in a new way today. And it really still applies. It's not that I look at it and just go, oh, that's dated, you know, even though there are some elements that maybe are, but actually there's a lot here. And this is the thing I love about science fiction is that it made me think about all these things about the brain. It made me think about my relationship with this friend who's not my friend anymore. It made me think about my own vanity. It made me think about my negative sides and, and, and accepting, being accepting of those negative sides or how I use those negative sides. And because of watching this post me too movement, it's like, man, that scene, it doesn't, it's not that the scene doesn't work. It's that it works better. Yeah. You know, looking at it today. So I just think it's a fantastic episode of television too. Well, I have to say that only on Enterprise Incidents can we take a 50-minute episode and turn it into a two-hour-plus conversation, <laughs> and that is the beauty of Enterprise Incidents, being able to do such a deep dive into each and every episode of the original series in such a way that we are able to also have fellow Star Trek fans uh, discover things about the episode that, that we love and discover for themselves. Scott, I've always loved that episode, but this conversation, man, we went 
deep. We went deeper than I thought was possible into the enemy within. And if you want to continue listening to these conversations, well, you just got to subscribe to the show on iTunes, or maybe you prefer to do it on Spotify. Maybe you're a big Android person and want to use Google Play. Maybe the only way you can find us is through YouTube. You could also follow the show on Facebook, search for Enterprise Incidents. Enterprise Incidents is our handle on Instagram. Enter Incidents is our handle on Twitter. Scott, what's your handle? Okay, my handle is at MovieMance on both Twitter and Instagram, and I encourage you to please, please, please hit us up on Twitter so that you can tell us exactly what you thought of this episode of Enterprise Incidents, of what you think so far of our series, what uh, you think you would love to hear us discuss Uh, Other things we could be doing on Enterprise Incidents that we're not already doing. And I have to say, uh, based on our running time for this episode (laughs) of Enterprise Incidents, I think we're doing quite a bit. But still, if there is something that you do want to hear, make sure you hit us up on uh, my my handle anyway, you know, uh, Movie Mance. And also check out my YouTube page for my film content, which is Scott Mance. But Steve, where can people hit you up? They can hit me up at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And of course, I've been talking about my other podcast, The Cinephiles. And if you are wondering how wide a range of movies we do, we've done everything from way back in the silent era with Buster Keaton's The General and Modern Times from Charlie Chaplin, all the way up to Marvel movies, including Iron Man and an unbelievable three-part conversation on Black Panther. Um, So definitely check that out. But the other thing I'm excited to check out is our next episode of Star Trek. Where are we going? Going next, Scott. Oh, let's see. Where are we going next? We are going to the planet M113, which, as trekkers definitely know, is the home of the salt creature from the man trap. Now, the man trap, uh, I would say, is not really an episode that we often find on top 10 lists of the best Trek episodes of them all. But of course, It is a landmark Star Trek episode because it was the first episode of Star Trek ever to air on TV on September 8th, 1966, which marks its 55th anniversary this year. And for that reason alone, you'll want to check out the next episode of Enterprise Incidents when we dive deep into the man trap. And of course, there are a lot of really great things about the man trap, as you will soon hear. So until the next Enterprise Incidents, keep going boldly. 